Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Kimberly Brownlee about social rights and freedoms. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth, for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a Canadian philosopher. I grew up in the Fraser Valley just outside Vancouver and um, did my my initial studies at the Lester B. Pearson United World College. I did the International Baccalaureate there. And that's where I discovered what philosophy is. Uh, I discovered there's this discipline that likes to ask big questions. And um, it was it was a fantastically formative two years studying there because it's, it's just a very small community, 200 students from 89 countries. And uh, so when, when different events were happening around the world, we, we were living our own mini, mini version of it at the college. So um, Isaac Rabin was assassinated while I was there. Quebec held its uh, referendum while I was there. And, and we sort of we felt we were living it because there were students affected personally and deeply by many of the big events in the world. And, um, and then after that, I, I went to McGill for my undergraduate degree and then to Cambridge and then to Oxford where, for my graduate work and discovered that in, in different places, different questions matter. Um, and that was a, a useful lesson to carry into professional philosophy that in different places, it's good to visit different places because there different questions are being debated. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. So, what was it that inspired you to study social rights and freedoms? Uh, so, I think all of my work has centered around sociability. My my first big topic was civil disobedience, and I was very interested by some some of the paradigms of of greatness. Uh, sort of political protest greatness. So Gandhi, um, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, and um, at least at, at the time I was studying this work, Aosang Suu Kyi. And uh, they, their lives, they were willing to give up so much personally for something they believed in. And I wanted to understand what what made such a person. And the, the key idea that I, I took out of my, uh, or that I put into my work was to argue that civil disobedience actually deserves more acknowledgement, more recognition than private conscientious objection. Because we tend to tolerate, we tend to try to accommodate private objection on the grounds that this is something someone deeply believes in, 
Um, we should accommodate them if we can. Uh, but in, in my mind, someone who privately objects is not, they're not, a, they're not embodying Gandhi's statement of my life is my message. Uh, they're, they're perhaps being a bit more self-protective. Whereas someone who's simply disobedient, who's willing to be seen to believe what they believe, um, they are the ones who can say, I am conscientious, I am sincere, I'm willing to bear the risks. And so that was my first, um, that project is my first exploration of an element of sociability, someone who wants to communicate their, their deepest beliefs, wants to change minds and hearts. And then um, my more my recent work on social rights and freedoms, that, that came um, as a result of reading a, a New Yorker article uh, that was written by Atul Gawande on solitary confinement. Um, and he, he argues in that article that solitary confinement is essentially torture. Uh, the, the article is called Hellhole on U.S. Uh, maximum security prisons. And he, uh, he said because it's essentially torturing a person, put them in isolation 23 hours a day or sometimes up to a decade, this is a human rights violation. And my reaction was that even if someone weren't physically tortured by being in isolation, if someone had the military training or the monastic training that they managed to endure this condition with equanimity, it would still be a human rights violation because they would be denied access to people. When you're put in isolation, you are rendered impotent. You have to wait for someone to come to you to give you contact. And so I wanted to explore what kind of social human rights would be behind uh, my, my inclination to say that solitary confinement is a, is a human rights violation. Just how important is our right to socialise? I think in the pandemic we've come to see just how important that, that right is. That uh, uh, you know, And different countries have endured isolation and uh, deprivation to different degrees, but Many people now know how tough it is to endure a lockdown, to be forced behind your front door, uh, to, you know, if you live alone, to essentially be solitarily confined. This is not incidental isolation. This isn't someone who needs some assistance to get out of the house and, and isn't given that assistance. This, this is we have all been coercively um, required to self-isolate. And... Um, and it has an effect on our mental health, on our physical health. Uh, we, we become more despondent, we can become depressed. Um, some people have suicidal ideation, many people stop eating. So our sense of purpose lowers when we are persistently alone, and certainly when we're forced to be persistently alone. So th there's a growing body of uh, social psychology evidence and, and cognitive neuroscience, social neuroscience evidence that um, argues that our social needs are needs with a capital N, uh, that we thirst for connection, that at a, at a very basic level, a molecular level, we are built to thrive with other people and to struggle when we're denied contact. So one of my key claims in the book is if that body of empirical evidence is right, that would suggest our social needs, our social interests are as fundamental, if not more fundamental, than any other need we have. 
Could you explain about the effects of loneliness? So loneliness is is different from social isolation, or at least the the, the dominant psychology definition is, is it, it ca- characterizes loneliness as the perception of isolation. So someone who is socially embedded, uh, who who has a, a caring family, may feel that they are isolated. Um, so the the literature, um, it, you know, the evidence is it, it's growing uh, to what extent these the experience of actual deprivation in social contact, to what extent that can trigger or, you know, are these things quite independent? And a lot of the focus in terms of healthcare is on that perception, uh, that perception of isolation as opposed to the material deprivation of contact. Um, my focus has been on the deprivation of contact, that uh, even if someone did not come to perceive themselves as isolated, they would be below a level of sufficiency in terms of their access to human contact. Um, with respect to the, the work on the, the perception, one very influential book uh, is by um, John Pachopo and William Packett called Loneliness, and they offer an evolutionary account of loneliness. They say that loneliness actually serves a function um, in the same way that pain does or thirst, or hunger, or fear, that these are, um, these negative experiences in our bodies, they prompt us to do something self-protective. So if we're feeling pain, we get away from the source of the pain. If we're feeling hunger, we go find food. If we're thirsty, we find water. If we're in fear, we get a, try to get away from the source of the fear. They say when we're lonely, when we feel lonely, that is a signal telling us to reach out socially. That negative feeling of being alone prompts us to reach out. But like these other um, signals, it can become corrosive. You you can have phantom pain. You can um, be constantly thirsty or constantly hungry. It can misfire sometimes. And when our loneliness impulse misfires, uh, then it can become internally destructive. And there are some statistics that say feeling lonely is actually worse for, chronically lonely, is worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Jeez. Um, and what are some of the dilemmas of sociability? So so one of my big tasks in the, in the book is to try to take our social needs seriously. Um, and so not just the social needs of a, of a baby or a young child, but the social needs we have throughout our lives, the, the needs to have an ad- adequate access to human, decent human, decent human contact, that's crucial, but it be decent. Um, and, uh, and the importance of feeling valued, uh, that we, um, we are of use to people. So not just that other people support us, but that we are someone whom others can depend on someone others need. Uh, that I think that is a crucial social interest we have. And so, um, in taking social social needs seriously, we then have to confront the the issue of freedom of association. Because um, if I have have a need to be needed, um, or even just have a need to be with people, there have to be some people willing to be with me, unless you know we're going to coerce them to be with me. And that's that's this that's the dilemma is how do we honor our important interest in freedom of association while still honoring 
our important interest in social inclusion and social protection. And so what I, what I argue in the book is that when these two interests bump into each other and conflict, the positive social interests will take priority. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to be friends with everybody. Um, it doesn't mean that I get to pick a particular person and say, you have to be my friend or you have to be my spouse. But it does mean that governments have a duty to support us in our sociability. It means governments may have to recruit agents to be professional social carers. Um, and it does mean that as individuals, we have a duty to ensure that everyone is adequately included, even if we're not the ones doing the including. So, so some would, you know, I, I resolve these dilemmas in a somewhat illiberal fashion, uh, saying that our positive social rights matter more than our freedom of association. But it's, uh, it's, you know, it's an illiberal bullet I'm happy to bite because you cannot even think of asserting freedom of association as an adult if, if no one prioritized your social interests as a, ch as a child. Someone had to give up their freedom to dissociate in order for us to grow into people who could be social. Um, because as, as babies, you know, we need close nurturing, we need constant care from a small set of persistent caregivers. And if we don't get that, then we can't exercise meaningful freedom later. How does solitary confinement and incidental isolation affect people? So um, it, it, it's, it was interesting reading Atogo Andre's piece, Telephone. Uh, he, he did a number of interviews of people who, who voluntarily isolate. Uh, so um, astronauts, solitary, uh, solo explorers, um, you know, monastic uh, people. That, so he was trying to get a sense of, you, you've chosen this, you've chosen to be alone, how have you found it? And... Uh, People who are solo sailors said, you know, they're enduring 50-foot waves and rough winds and being sick and ill and injured all by themselves. But the hardest part was the isolation. People who are astronauts um, say, you know, they come to depend on the radio, that little bit of contact back to Earth, that that's crucial for them. People who've endured prison, uh, isolation in prison, um, including journalists who've been political prisoners, they they say they go into it. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll be fine. I've you know I've read lots of books. I've watched lots of movies. I'll just you know I'll live in the life of the mind. I'll remember the poetry I was forced to memorize in school. And they find very very soon after that they are breaking down mentally. Uh, you know my 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 mind's gone blank. It's just a black horror. And um, and so the the, you know, the evidence, the growing body of evidence is that it's that solitary confinement is a deeply destructive experience, and that its residue lasts long after someone is released from prison. I had the opportunity to um, to, to go to a prison in the UK and to meet their senior management team and offer some offer my thoughts on. Uh, on some of their practices and, and did say that the segregation wing, in my mind, breached a right against social deprivation. Uh, because the UK actually claims not to use solitary confinement, but you can still be held for up to two weeks. That's become sort of an accepted number of days that someone can be 
held in isolation. Um, but the psychologists I've spoken to have said that number is a political number. It's not a scientifically endorsed number, backed number, that it's uh, you know, 24 hours can become extremely difficult for someone. But the, the prison I visited, the management team said, essentially, well, you know, what would you propose? Uh, you know, we've, we've, had to isolate, we've had to isolate someone because you know, they were threatening another inmate with a, with a knife. Um, they've got a weapon and you know, they were threatening to do violence. What, you know, what would you suggest? And, and I guess the answer would be you have to start much earlier in the process. Um, I think one, you know, there are many things wrong with how we tend to run prisons in Anglo-American countries. And one is that contact with non-criminogenic outside communities is a privilege. They can be withdrawn. Uh, because management teams have discovered this is their most powerful carrot and stick. Uh, that the, the offer of you know, the proposal, the privilege of outside contact, contact with family and friends, that can be the best way to get good behavior. And the threat of loss of that contact plays the stick. And I think that it's, it's not a privilege. Uh, you know, if you have established bonds, you have a human right to have those be protected and not severed. And they, you have a secure right to have access to your social contacts. Um, it does not depend on good standing or good behavior. Could you explain about interactional freedom? Okay. So this is a new topic for me, and um, and I haven't actually found much work in philosophy on this topic. There's there's some very interesting work in sociology. Uh, Irving Goffman's become one of my um, fa- favorite thinkers to, uh, to look at on, on interaction, interaction rituals. He, he talks about um, how when we come to someone in a, in a conversation, we are making something of a moral moral demand or moral request. You know, please please allow me to keep face, save face. Uh, please engage with me on the terms that I'm presenting myself. And uh, so, so I found that work very interesting. But the the ideas I'm exploring. There's a, there's a couple of them, but, but one is that um, our interactional lives are a little bit like our associative lives, in that we have a need to be acknowledged. Uh, when we make a bid for someone's attention, even a stranger's attention, we have a, an inclination, a, a deep wish to be acknowledged. And uh, there's some, some work in psychology by Kipling Williams, which says that when we are denied acknowledgement, even by a stranger, we feel acute social pain. And that the parts of our brain which register physical pain are actually the same neural pathways that register social pain. And so if someone, even just someone turning away from, from you, someone you don't know, have no expectation of having future contact with, if they turn away, you, you register this as painful. And apparently, we all actually register it as equally painful. Some of us recover more quickly from it than, than others. But it's, it's a bit like, you know, by being punched in the shoulder. You know, we'll, you know, unless we're very desensitized to pain, we'll all have a bruise and, and, uh, um, and then you know, recover at different speeds. And so the, the thought in, in terms of interactional freedom is that this, the freedom to ignore someone uh, bumps into our fundamental interest in being acknowledged. And I resolve that tension in the same way that I resolve the tension between freedom of association and positive social inclusion interests. I argue that the positive interests are more important than the freedom 
to ignore the freedom to dissociate, the freedom not to interact. And so we do something morally wrong when we deem someone to be beneath our notice. It's not just being impolite. This is actually a moral wrong. Now, our, our rights can protect us in doing wrong things. Um, so our freedom of speech, it, it's there to protect us when we want to say things that are offensive. We don't need our freedom of speech to protect us from saying things that are trivial or, or innocuous or admirable. We need the right to protect us from doing bad stuff. So we have a, a right to interactional freedom, which protects us in doing the wrong, the moral wrong of ignoring someone when they bid for our attention. But that freedom, that right to act wrongly by ignoring people, it is checked by a duty we have to ensure people adequately acknowledged. So um, one reference point for this uh, is a, um, an Australian man, uh, Gregory P. Smith. Um, he spent over two decades uh, living sleeping rough on the streets um, of Eastern Australia, and he eventually retreated into the Australian bush and lived as a hermit for close to a decade because he, he found it so so demoralizing, dehumanizing to feel like he was invisible, that sort of the great wash of humanity would pass him by on the street and no one would acknowledge him. And he felt like he was, he felt he was see-through. And he said you know, his trauma of being ostracized was so acute that he actually felt grateful when police you know, gave him a kick in the shins and said, you know, move on, or when passers-by um, beat him up, that at least they were engaging with him. And so when, if that's what um, relentless ostracism reduces us to, that we crave abuse just to be acknowledged, it signals how important acknowledgement is to us. And, uh, and that's the reason I argue our contractual freedom is checked by our interactional interests and inclusion. What is moral messiness? <laughs> so, so a chapter in the book is, is called Moral Messiness. And, and here um, I, I, I realized that I needed to tackle, I needed to tackle the question of, you know, what to do about associations that shouldn't exist. So, um, you know, in part of the book, I, I argue that our, our freedom to form associations is, is constrained by important considerations like voluntariness. You know, I, I, I have stressed you don't have a right to have this person be your friend if you want. You know, friendship is a voluntary undertaking by both people. So, so I, yeah, I lay out a number of conditions that have to be satisfied for a relationship to an association to be one where the parties have legitimate expectations of each other and have some duties toward each other. And then I, I look in this, in this chapter on moral messiness on uh, you know, what do we do about associations that should not exist. So an underage marriage, a child forced into a marriage. Um, sometimes there's two children forced to marry. Sometimes it's one child. Usually it's a, if it is a, if one child and an adult, it will be a young girl and an adult uh, man. And... You know, what do we say about these associations? And um, I also look at some cases of, of kidnapping. Uh, there was one case in the States of a little girl, her mother was out of the picture, her father was in prison, and the neighbors took her in and, and informally ad adopted her. And then nine years later, when the father came out of prison, he asserted his rights and the child was returned to him. And so, so the thing I, I look at in, in the book is, 
in a way, who, who should have the right to continue to raise that child? And, and I argue that you can change the moral ballgame by setting up a relationship that shouldn't exist and then behaving well in that relationship and changing the other person's interests. So the little girl who was adopted by the neighbors, you know, arguably the neighbors should not have done that because they, they would have known they were leaving her legally vulnerable. Um, but as time, over, you know, over the nine years that they cared for her, they changed her interests. Her interests came to be intertwined with theirs, uh, and they came to have a moral claim, a moral right to stay in a relationship they never should have formed. Um, so too in the case of, of an underage marriage, while this such relationship should not exist, once it does exist, the moral ballgame has changed. Uh, that very often it's a young girl who could not go back to her family, um, that she would be uh, should be shunned if she were to leave her marriage. Um, she should be treated in an age-appropriate way within the marriage. Um, but she now has changed interests, and especially if she and her partner have children, she has changed interests. And, and so, so I end up arguing somewhat uncomfortably that people can bootstrap themselves into relationship rights um, when, in relationships they never should have formed. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, I'll just say a quick word about my next project, which is to look at interactional vices and virtues. So I've, I've now written a paper on how um, at each stage of an interaction, we can we can kind of get it wrong, uh, not in a grand sense, but um, the, the, there's an arc to an interaction. There's the initiation where someone bids for someone's attention. There's the execution where we have our conversation. And then there's the ending, the parting. And, um, and the, the partings matter. There's sort of a delicate moral art to ending an interaction. And we can actually um, you sort of fail to respect each other by, right, I'm, I'm off to get a coffee. And suddenly someone feels like they're beneath our notice. Uh, Kipling Williams, this psychologist I've referenced, he talks about an experience he had, which made him realize he wanted to study ostracism. He was in a park and um, with his dog on a blanket and a Frisbee bumped into him on, on the back and he turned and saw two hopeful young men wanting their Frisbee back. And he tossed it back to them and then unexpectedly they tossed it to him again. And they then sort of formed a three-way Frisbee game. And then at some point uh, they stopped tossing the Frisbee to him. They started just tossing back and forth between the two of them and, and he it was sort of funny for a moment, but then he realized they weren't going to include him again. And he slunk back to his blankets, and and he said, you know, they were strangers. I had you know, had no expectation of anything further, but I felt you know, deeply, um, I felt deep pain at having been shut out. And and it, it made, so not only did it prompt him to study autism, but it, it reminded me how much partings matter, that some delicate way of ending an interaction to save face, enable each side to save face, is, is a moral act we can offer each other. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I've never, never really thought of that before. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you very much, Beth. And I've been speaking with Professor Kimberly Brownlee about social rights and freedoms Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.